have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 18. If you don't, there are folks walking down with a stack of Bibles. Please relieve their laborious burden and raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. They'll give you one. Uh, these books are so heavy. And look at them. They just look exhausted. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible and you get handed one, you're welcome to keep it. That's a gift. So that's all yours. I think we need a Bible up here. <laughs> so um, we, we were taking a look at the rich young ruler last week, and uh, we're going to finish up the story of the rich young ruler. We went all the way as far as verse 22, and we're going to go from 22 all the way to 30. But before I do that, I wanted to share with you um, just really how the Lord ministered to me um, through this passage as I was preparing during the week and uh, just reading when I said we're going to have two guest speakers, um, my wife and I uh, and our kids took a little break and went uh, to go visit my side of the family. We spent Christmas with Michelle's side of the family, uh, and then we went to San Diego after Christmas to go visit my family, uh, my sister and my brother-in-law, um, and, and, and they're down in Coronado. And uh, so we went down, and I was excited about taking a few days off. And then uh, a member of our congregation who is to remain anonymous because I'm just fearful for what would happen to them if I told people what they did to me. Um, uh, they, they, uh, they texted me and said, you know, there's a big gathering in Miami with evangelical leaders uh, and I think you should go. Now... My favorite verse, I, I stole this from my friend David Glinky, but one of my favorite verses, it says, we're two or more gathered, Jesus is in the midst. I've changed it. The verse goes, we're two or more gathered, Rob's not there. <laughs> I have no desire to fly to Miami to be in a room full of evangelical leaders. Um, and I, I don't even go to pastor's conferences for the most part. Not, not, it's not an ego thing, I just... I don't do well in stuff like that. I, I like being with you guys. I like being at home. Um, so they texted me and they said, you should go to this event in Miami. Uh, my wife and I are going. And I said, I t texted back, I have no interest. They happened to know that I'm officially the chaplain at Turning Point USA. So they texted Charlie, Kirk. <laughs> and uh, they said to Charlie, do you think Rob should be there? And Charlie responded, oh, Absolutely. And then I texted them back. I said, why, why did you do that? And I was serious. Why did you do that? As I was enjoying my time in Coronado with my family. And that means that I would have to, the event was on Friday, which means I have to leave Thursday. And I was in Coronado on Wednesday. So um, I got to go. So I booked the flight and say goodbye to my family, the beauty of Coronado. And I take the flight to Miami. I get in late. I uh, get to the airport, a fellow picks me up, um, I'm actually, Miami airport's kind of confusing, and I walk out, and uh, where you get the Uber, it was really crowded and backed up as far as the eye could see, but behind you, kind of like it is at LAX, the internal lanes were moving, it was kind of pass-through traffic, and this is share-a-ride traffic, and it was crazy. Well, this car pulls up behind me as I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get an Uber, and it is just chaos. And this car pulls up behind me and rolls down the window, and I turn. Hispanic fellow, he says, uh, are you looking for an Uber? I said, yeah, I haven't called it yet. And he goes, well, I can give you a ride. And I'm thinking, I've heard some things about this. I'm not real sure. 
And I kind of size him up and I think, I, I could take him. And I, I, and I said, uh, yeah, I, I'll, I could use a ride, sure. So I get in and uh, he says, where are you going? And I give him it and he types in and he says, that'll be $50. And I'm like, ooh, okay, I got to calculate this because I didn't know Miami that well. And I calculate and I figure, okay, he's not, he's not jipping me. And I said, great, let's do it. And we're driving and his, his English was better than my Spanish but between the two of us, we had a conversation, I think we both understood. His name was Jose, and um, really sweet guy. And we started talking, and he was 28 years old, and his birthday, that was uh, Thursday when I landed, his birthday was going to be Saturday. And he's turning 29, and he's married, and he has a daughter. And uh, he's been in the United States a couple years. And I said, where are you from? And he said, well, originally from Venezuela. I said, ooh, Venezuela. I said, are you happy to be here? He says, very much so, yes. And, he's, and his mom and dad still live in Venezuela, and he works to send um, support back to Venezuela. And he said, my country's been destroyed. And, and he didn't know much about American politics. And he says, why are you here? And I said, I'm here for a gathering of pastors. And I had to explain to him, pastor, iglesia, church, go through the whole thing. And I said, and the president of the United States is going to be there speaking to this room full of pastors in the largest Hispanic church in the United States. It's run by a Honduran pastor, uh, Maldonado, and a little, little guy. Uh, and and I, uh, I thought, Charlie's going to be there. Um, and it was packed. So the place holds 7,000 people, and there was another few thousand that didn't get in. And I was told... I had access and a ticket. My name was on the list. Good stuff. So Jose and I get to the hotel. I say thank you to him. Really sweet guy. I had talked to him a little bit about the Lord, but not a lot. Talked to him about Venezuela. And he's an entrepreneur. And I could tell by the way he pulled up behind. He knew how to work it. He's trying to help his family. And um, he said, can I pick you up for your ride back? You're leaving Saturday. I said, yes. I said, I don't know. It's a bit of a drive for you, and I have to leave here by 6 a.m. on Saturday. He says, I'll be here. I'm like, this guy's a go-getter. And I said, all right. And I, he said, here's my number, and I put it in my phone, and I give him my contact information, and we'll see if it works out. Next day, uh, I meet up with Charlie uh, and the folks that I'm with, the people that, whose name I don't want to disclose by the name of Lane. And... Um, <laughs> And so as, as we're, we're heading over to the church, it is, it is pandemonium, P- people as far as the eye can see. And the airport is over here. It's a private airport. The Secret Service blocked off with, I mean, it's crazy. The president's coming. And he's going to be addressing a room full of evangelical leaders. And I'm not one of the in crowd. And so I get there, and I've been assured uh, by uh, Charlie that Paula White, who is the orchestrator, she works with the president, for the faith community, that my name's on the list. Charlie and I walk up, but we park. Like, here's the end of the earth, and it's about 20 miles past that. <laughs> we get up there, it's a little humid, I'm sweating, I'm wearing a suit. We get up there, and uh, Charlie Kirk, oh, hi, Mr. Kirk, yeah, your name's here. And I go, Rob McCoy, we don't have your name here. I'm like, <laughs> it's just, flew all the way out here, David, Lane. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I, I'm, it's okay, you know. And Charlie goes, just stick with me, we'll get in. And the, and the lady gives me a pass. She goes, you're with Charlie? I said, yes, yeah. it gives me a pass. Good to be with Charlie. So walking in, 
we're not in the elite group of the evangelical leaders. Uh, we're the evangelical peons. So they put us over here. So the minute we walk in, everyone surrounds Charlie. Charlie, can I get a picture with you? Charlie, can I get a picture with you? And it, it, as far as the eye can see, it's lining up. We're never going to get to the front. And they're all taking pictures. And, and it's all Hispanic uh, congregation, and they're thrilled and taking pictures. Taking, and I'm the camera guy, camera guy, camera guy. Finally, weaving through, and we get to the front, and everyone sees the pandemonium surrounding Charlie. And I turn to some of the security folks. I go, if you don't get him a seat in the front, this is going to go all day. And they say, well, we'll work it out. And so we get up to the front, and I end up getting seated. If this is where the president's speaking, I'm, I'm right there, uh, second row, and uh, in the aisle, and then uh, uh, Charlie's next to me. And directly to my right across the aisle is uh, uh, Jim and Shirley Dobson. The Do- yeah. Younger folks are like, who? <laughs> Just, uh, and then to my left is Charlie, but then the two sons of the pastor. And then in the front, right in the front row and across the aisle is Paula White, who's running the whole thing. And literally, the, the pastor's wife is here, and then there's the barricade, Secret Service, and the president. So it's close. And, uh, and I'm, I'm looking, and, and the, the, these folks get up, and they go to the back. And I go, Charlie, what's going on? He goes, they're all going to go get to shake the hand of the president. <laughs> no, that's great. And so they all go, and, and, and then they come back in. And I introduce Charlie to Pastor Greg Laurie. I don't know if you know him. Pastor Greg's excited. He says, how do you know him? He asked me, and, and Charlie says, well, he's the chaplain for Turning Point, but he's also my pastor. And Greg goes, he's your pastor? And I go, well, that's what he said. <laughs> and, and I said, Greg, you really need to get him to speak at your church. And uh, he said, uh, yeah, really? What, what would he talk about? I said, fastest growing religion in America, atheism. I said, as a matter of fact, Jack Hibbs had him speak. Let me get Jack. Jack! Jack comes over, he goes, yeah, Greg, you got to get him in. Okay, work it out, Rob. I said, I'll work it out. And there's Franklin Graham over there, and you're just watching everybody. And isn't that special? I'm over here. And, um, <laughs> and, then, and, and then the president comes out, and he begins to speak. Um, and and he, he had had a speech written for him by a, a guy by the name of Vince Haley. And Vince is the speechwriter for the president. And we, Michelle and I had, or not Michelle, uh, Cindy, Lane, David, and I had the chance to go out to dinner with Vince that night. He had written a speech that day. And Vince um, is a friend because we took him on a trip to Israel. And so we sit down, and, and here's the president speaking. And Charlie's giving me some insights. He's going to veer off the teleprompters. He'll go extemporaneous. He's, 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 he's extemporaneous now, and you can tell. He's back on the teleprompter, you can tell. And it was fascinating watching it. And all the cameras were there because the assassination of the Iranian general had just occurred and they're waiting for a statement. Everybody's worried about World War III. And, and, um, and so the president addressed that at the beginning. You could see the cameras running. Then the evangelical leaders pl- prayed for him. He had addressed everyone. And it was, a, it was a really good speech. Three times through the course of the speech, he referred to Charlie Kirk and at one point, he says, Charlie, stand up. I'm like, it's Charlie right here, everybody. And he stands up. And, and I think it was confusing to the president because he couldn't equate Charlie being evangelical. Because what Charlie does is political. And he didn't really equate him being involved with the evangelical community. But what's happening in America, especially at this church, because I would say a very large portion of this church is illegal immigrants. 
It's the largest Hispanic church in America. There's an awakening happening. And the awakening, it's political, but the byproduct is spiritual. And this all ties into the passage because when we looked at the rich young ruler last week, we remember the first or the second five commandments that he says, I followed since my youth. And we look at Galatians 3 that the law is a school teacher to point us to Christ. As people are being awakened to self governance, meaning we're accountable to God and accountable to each other, they're starting to realize wait a minute, how does this work? How do we dwell together and live together in a government that is, gives us freedom without oppression? And these folks had all immigrated from nations that they're oppressed. Jose in the, in the car ride, Venezuela, my country's devastated. And, and they're sitting there and they're illegal and they're, they're moved. And, and the president's talking on immigration and they're clapping. And the evangelical leaders over here, and the president talked about life, he talked about immigration, he talked about a wall, and the evangelical white leaders over here are going, and they have, they're completely separated from the rest of the crowd. And you can see the dichotomy in America. And this is an aging group. Half the room has no idea who James and Shirley Dobson are. And, and so witnessing this, I'm just mesmerized. And then as I'm driving back, or as I'm heading back to the hotel, I got Charlie's luggage to his place and a lot of stuff going on, and we finally, I get back to the room, and I'm kind of looking at the text and studying a little bit, and it's jumping out at me, and I was so moved by it. And then finally, uh, I have to get up early in the morning. So we got in at about 12.30, almost 1 in the morning, and I have to get up at 5 to get 6 o'clock flight, or my, my ride, that night, while I'm at dinner talking with Vince Haley, I go, oh, I got to text Jose. Literally, I got to text Jose. So I get my phone, and as I begin to look for his name, bloop, text comes up. It's him. Mr. Rob, that's what he called me, do you need a ride tomorrow? I said, yes, Jose, uh, probably have to be there about 6 a.m. And he said, I will meet you tomorrow. I thought, wow. And I go, it's his birthday. And I'd gotten a medallion uh, from somebody and it was a Trump thing, and it was on my desk. I thought, I'll give him that as a gift, and uh, get up in the morning. I go down, and he's waiting for me. I go, Jose, how are you? Happy birthday. He goes, you remembered. I said, of course I did. I said, I got your present. Here's a medallion. He goes, oh, the president? Yeah. Thank you. I said, you're welcome. And I said, $50? He goes, yeah. I go, no. He's like, oh, how much? I go, 100 today because it's your birthday. And he smiled, and we drove, and the drive there, I started to talk to him. I said, do you understand socialism? He says, I do. It's devastated my country. I said, Jose, do not vote for anyone who says socialism works. He goes, I won't. I said, and tell everybody you know. He says, I will. It doesn't work. And he says, I, okay, I, I got it. I said, and then Jose, do you go to church? He says, no. He said, I didn't grow up church. I don't understand church. I said, the laws of nature and nature's God, where you get connected with the Lord, you learn how to dwell with each other, you don't lie, you don't steal, you don't cheat, these things. You have to understand these principles and apply them to our culture so that we never end up like this. Government is not our God. God is our God. Get to know him. Introduce him to your family. I said, Jose, I want you to find a church. He says, I will. I want you to take your daughter. He says, I will. I said, the church I just went to, I think you'll really like it. Jesus El Rey, king of the, yeah. He says, okay. 
And we had this great conversation. I talked to him about the Lord. I told him about the way of salvation. It was just precious. Get there, give him a hug. I give him my address, my contact information. I come visit me. He said he would. It was precious. And then I come home. All that to say that as I got into this text, and I taught it last week, I think every person that teaches this text thinks it's a tithing message. It, 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 it's, you know, if, if you're lacking money in a church, you're the pastor, teach on this. Hit rich people up. It's not a tithing message. This, this is a message that transforms culture because in the course of this next portion of the story, Peter asks a question because Jesus throws out a statement that is devastating. Devastating. And everyone hearing the statement is devastated. And Peter speaks and he says, wait a minute, then who can be saved? I'll show you what I mean. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'm going to pick up where we studied last week, which is verse 18, just to put it into context, and then we'll proceed with the study from verse 23 to the end. Now, a certain ruler asked Jesus, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all of these things I've kept from my youth. And you remember my youth means since I've been bar mitzvahed. I've gone from a youth to an adult and I'm a, child of, I'm a son of the law. Right? So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful because he was very rich. And Matthew says that as he walked away, the scripture says Jesus loved him. Luke doesn't include that. Luke's a physician. He doesn't get into emotion. But Matthew says he loved him. Verse 24, when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And here's the crazy statement. Listen. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? Jesus said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, see, we have left all and have followed you. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. So that's our text, and I'll explain. Let me pray first. Lord, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, please lead us into all truth. We thank you that your word is living and breathing. And so, Lord, we ask that you cause us to come alive to your word. Minister to us now, Lord, and we thank you for the timeliness of how you orchestrated our lives to come to this place. So our hearts are open. And so, Lord, please speak to us now and be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. As you recall, in the previous passage that we studied last week, uh, he called him good teacher. 
And the only one who's good is God. And, and any rabbinical teacher would testify that you don't call any rabbi good. Only God is good. And so Jesus sets the tone by asking questions. He, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so I, I don't care who you are. I, I do know this, that there is a moment in your life where you have contemplated beyond death. Now, you may have settled and come to a place where you think that we're just matter and that we just dissipate and go back into the atmosphere and there's no consciousness or maybe our consciousness will be transferred to a Silicon Valley robot and that'll be, you know, something special. Um, and, then, and then that's something that you, you think is going to happen. But the reality is we're creatures that contemplate our eternity, Bible says that God has written eternity on our hearts. Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, said, every human being is created with a God-shaped void. We still contemplate what's beyond. We have questions. We think if we travel at the speed of light, we can get to the next galaxy, next solar system, blah, blah, blah. And we get into Star Trek and Star Wars and all that other stuff. And then we come up with fanciful ideas. And, and yet the idea that there's a creator and we're accountable to him and that there's laws that he's established for us to be governed by, we throw those off and, and, and we exchange the truth for a lie and we, we pursue a life without God and we throw off restraint and then we watch the consequences of that. Because if you, if you restrain the truth and promote a lie, the bill's going to come due because truth will always prevail. And, and you, you can say you know, these things, but as Aristotle pointed out, there's, there's virtues, and there's, there's the, the thinking virtue and the doing virtue, or another way to put it is there's, there's feeling good and doing good. There's feeling good and doing good. You can feel good about what you're doing, but you're not doing good. I'll give you an example. You're at a stoplight, and there's somebody on the corner with a sign begging for money. It feels good to use sage your guilt to give them some money, but you're not doing good. And I'm speaking as a council member in the city of Thousand Oaks that is not helping the problem at all. You have no idea. You haven't taken time to invest. You don't know what they're doing. You don't know the struggles in their life. We've got resources all over this city. We have ways to address it. And it feels good, but you're not doing good. Another way to feel good is you see somebody with a drug addiction. And it feels good to be able to provide for them free needles. And call it an exchange. You bring back the dirty ones, we'll give you clean ones. By the way, we're not exchanging them. They just get scattered on the streets of San Francisco and Los Angeles, all over the place. And it feels good to give them an opiate because it takes away their pain. But you're not doing good. You're killing them. Slowly. You take away their pain, but God gives us pain to show us that we're out of alignment with the laws of nature and nature's God. He gives us pain, just like you have a pain in your back because your spine's out of alignment. He shows us pain, tells us something's wrong. It's a gift from God in a fallen world. And you think that a utopia is the absence of pain, as we studied Hansen's disease previously. You think that a utopia is the absence of pain. Well, there's a place on the earth that's absent of pain, but it's no utopia. It's a leper colony. Leprosy, Hansen's disease, takes away pain. You can put your hand on a stove as you're leaning there talking, and you have no sense of smell because your senses are gone. You have no sense of feeling, so you don't know that your hand is burning, nor can you smell that it's burning. It's bubbling. There's no pain. Their, their extremities don't fall off because of the disease. They fall off because they get gangrenous sores. They gangrene begins to rot. They can't smell the decaying flesh. They, they don't know what's happening. They can't feel the pain. They can't feel the swelling. 
and they're pain-free, and their body is rotting. And when you're feeling good to give somebody a, a narcotic to take away their pain, they're, they're, they're nodding in the streets, and they're, they're emaciated, and they're naked, and they're shivering, and they defecate themselves, and they're, they're nodding up and down, and, and that's not doing good. It may feel good to have a governmental system that gives them a needle, but that's not doing them any good. It feels good. Feeling good, doing good, two totally different things. There's the laws of nature and nature's God. Pain is important. How then shall we now live? How do we govern one another? My drive with Jose, the question was, what's different between Venezuela and the United States? He says, here I have opportunity. I'm sending money to my family to keep them alive. He says, I'm grateful for that. And how is it that America's flourished? We've become wealthy. Well, it's a nation in the 6,000 years of recorded history that acknowledges the presence of God. 244 years we've acknowledged the existence of God. We don't worship government, we worship God. Government's not the answer, God is. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by the Creator, certain inalienable rights. Among those, life, liberty, pursuit of virtue or happiness. And as we studied last week, the idea of three to five million Jews coming out of Egypt, ending up in the, in the wilderness, in the desert, three to five million people live together. After Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, gets a downloaded moral app. First five commandments, our relationship with God. Second five commandments, our relationship with each other. In the passage we studied last week, Jesus quotes the last five commandments. How are you dealing with one another? And he says to the rich young ruler, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You're a son of the law. You've been bar mitzvahed. I've kept those since my youth. I have dwelt with people in this community living together, dwelling together. I haven't stolen, I haven't lied, I haven't coveted, I haven't bared false witness, I've honored my mother and father. He says, good. You got this down. You're missing a vertical connection. And this is where I find Charlie fascinating, Charlie Kirk. He is stepping into a world of young people. These aged white evangelicals are declining in their influence by their own testimony. A room that they don't relate to. One president is literally, and I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat, one guy has transformed the landscape. Republicans never had Hispanics or blacks. Just didn't, didn't work. They, they, would, they, would, they, they wouldn't know how to relate. Just, it was a rich man's political venture. And certainly not young people. And here the landscape's changing. And they don't know how. They've been trying for years. They don't, they don't know how to do it. But they're looking at a room filled with people that are the opposite of whatever it is they've been a part of. Why? Because you had a group of young people who stepped onto campuses and contended for truth. Politically. What they do is political and the byproduct spiritual. What do I mean by that? They're saying that there are absolutes. The laws of nature and nature's God. You may not believe in the God I believe in, but there's a, there's a creator that governs the universe. 
It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. It doesn't matter if you're white or black, Hispanic, Asian. It doesn't matter. You're bound by the law of gravity. You're bound by the fact that we have to tell the truth if we're going to get along together. You're bound by the idea that there are, there's private property and the protection of private property because three to five million Jews dwelt in the wilderness with this downloaded moral app and the greatest miracle is they didn't need a police force or a standing army for 40 years because they knew how to get along with each other just like the rich man is saying in here, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't murdered, I haven't stolen, I haven't bore false witness, I've honored my mother and father, I know how to get along. My, my people have done that for 40 years without a police force, standing army, no prisons. As John Adams said, only a moral people can govern a republic. And so we all know this, and now we're watching as we're changing these laws. And we're saying, no, 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 drug addiction is not a bad thing. Addiction isn't a bad thing. You just need to embrace it. We need to legalize it. There's no consequences to your actions. We just need to let felons out. We need to let them devote. We just need to do all these things. And we're watching as it's not working. We need to increase taxes. And whatever your political makeup is, the point is, it's not working here. It's not working. And the testimony of that was Jose. I go, Jose, why did you leave Venezuela? I never got to keep anything I made. They took my father's business. They took our house. And he said this. He said, they promised us everything. We got nothing. And people became anemic and lethargic. And they waited for a handout. And they'd stop working. I go, yeah. Yeah. We took out things that mattered. Yeah. So the point is this. You have a rich young ruler. He's kept these commandments since his youth. But he's missing something. He wants to know about eternal life. He's contemplating beyond the grave. He's contemplating the existence of God. Wondering what happens when you die. And what's the point? What's the point? And when he says, Jesus says, you want eternal life? You're lacking one thing. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And as we said last week, it, it's not the issue that it applies to everyone, but don't make the mistake that it applies to no one. It's what stands in the way of your relationship with God. For him, it was his money. And then the scripture says, when he heard this, and this is what we study today, when he heard this, he became very sorrowful because he was very rich. I thought about that idea. He was sorrowful, which is unequivocal Unequivocal proof, unequivocal proof that his money contributed nothing to his comfort. He's miserable even while he's rich. Something's missing. And that's where in the course of our time together in 2020, God has put on my heart for us to memorize scripture. And I'm going to do two, two verses a month, and we already began one, and you remember the verse, now godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy 6, 6, together. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Have you memorized it? Seven words, real simple. You see, 
the cure to greed is generosity. But it also brings contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. In this story of the rich young ruler, though we covered verses 18 to 23, now we're doing 23 to 30. And in that, as I shared earlier, Jesus said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This was baffling to everyone that was present when Jesus said it. They couldn't comprehend it. And for those of you who think, oh, oh, I read in a commentary. Well, God bless you that you're reading commentaries. But if you read in the commentary that the eye of the needle is a gate in Jerusalem that's really low and the camel had to get down on its knees and then take the stuff off and then crawl underneath it, it doesn't exist. It's, it's not real. All right? What Jesus said, he meant what he meant he said. For a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Impossible. You can't say, well, no. A rich man's not getting into heaven. It's impossible. And this is what baffled them. Because every child of the law, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, who had committed, especially Psalm 119 to memory, it all deals with the law. And they studied the law, and they studied the Psalms, and every child knew the verse, especially in, in, in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sit or nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the way of, of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and upon that law he meditates day and night. So they, they were told that they would be happy if they meditated on the law. Blessed, oh how happy. Blessed, oh how happy. And when they meditate, they don't stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. They don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Counsel, counsel, legal counsel. They learn how to operate by the laws of nature and nature's God in accordance with the reality that there's a creator and they are accountable to that creator and how to dwell with one another. And if they do that, they'll be blessed. So when God gave to Moses the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and they started to not steal from each other, not cheat, and you could trust your, 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 your neighbor and you could shake their hand and you knew that there was honesty because they were accountable to God and they didn't want anything to violate the, the vertical relationship so that the horizontal relationship stayed intact. One fed the other and the other fed that one. So when you shake somebody's hand, you know they're gonna tell the truth. You know that they won't commit adultery. You know that they won't steal or lie or cheat because they have God in the equation. They're accountable. It's vital. Only a moral people can govern a republic. And that freedom comes. And so when he gave the Decalogue and three to five million people dwelt without any issue, he had to bring the Levitical law. And the Levitical law was necessary because private property. They started to get blessed. When you have a culture where you don't have to worry about someone stealing from you, it's a really good place to do business. When you have somebody who has a work ethic that you know you employ that won't steal from you, it's really good for business. When you know that you go to a restaurant and you're going to get what you ordered, it's really good business. It is a great environment, unlike Venezuela. That's why he's here plying a trade. And then people become generous 
And they give you something on your birthday and they've only known you for two days. It's a really good environment. Honesty creates this and all of a sudden wealth begins to flourish. Well, contradiction. Oh, how happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly nor stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Upon that law he meditates day and night. He's gonna be blessed. And now that you're blessed, you can't go to heaven. Well, why do you meditate on the law? We studied it last week. The law is our teacher to bring us to Christ. As you apply these principles and people begin to get blessed and you see that if you, the law of reciprocation and the law of honesty and these truths that are self-evident, all of a sudden you start saying, well, there is a God who governs in the affairs of men and if we operate in this context, we flourish. And if we don't, we take what is one of the most beautiful cities in America, San Francisco, and I don't even want to go there anymore. I've been to the Tenderloin. It's fecal matter and hypodermic needles as far as the eye can see. It's filthy. And now we got 70,000 homeless living in L.A. We lead the nation in poverty and in homelessness. We have the worst roads. And now we're getting fined $1,000 if you use more than 55 gallons of water a day. And it, yeah, I don't know if you've read any of the latest laws that have come out, but they don't seem to be working, and everyone's leaving. We're going to lose a congressional seat because more people have left the state than came here during the Dust Bowl. So it's a hard place to do business. Just drive down the boulevard and see how many have closed. But here's the fascinating thing. Jesus says, for a rich man to get to heaven, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And this is what baffled them, is because continuing on on Psalm 1, it says, blessed is man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sit in the seat of the the sinner, or or stand in the way of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Upon that law he meditates day and night. And then it says, he shall be like a tree planted by streams of water that produces fruit in season. Whatever he does shall prosper. Whatever he does shall prosper. Whatever he does shall prosper. You follow God's law, you're going to prosper. You apply these principles, you're going to prosper. It's a great way to be governed. You're going to prosper. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. God says, if you do this, then I'll do that. If you don't do this, then I'll do that. It's the law of reciprocation. And God blesses nations. And they rise and they fall. And then he goes on to say, but you'll be blessed And in America, in the 6,000 years of recorded history, never has a a nation, 244 years, ever experienced such financial blessing, ever. We've accumulated more wealth than than probably all nations combined through the history of the world. It's unbelievable what has been produced. And in three years, you can take unemployment as record high and drop it to nothing. You can get industry sparking again and moving. Lowest unemployment on record in, in, in the history. It's churning. We're making money in the stock market. We're making money and you're all going to hell. <laughs> hang, hang with me, I didn't mean that. <laughs> but hyperbole, Jesus does make the emphasis What did he mean when he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man 
to get into heaven. And that's why Peter and the rest that were present said, who then can be saved? If a guy who honors God is blessed and, and, and the Levitical laws are for private property and, and, and we get blessed because we're honoring the laws of nature and nature's God and the Levitical law and we're, we're doing Psalm 1 and Psalm 119 and we get blessed, now we can't go to heaven? Is it impossible? And Jesus said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, Lord, we left everything to follow you. It's a great emphasis because this all began by Jesus watching a rich man walk away sorrowful and Jesus loved him. And for those of you thinking, well, you know, a rich man can get to heaven. A camel can pass through the eye of a needle. Really? It, it's literally an eye of a needle. Now, I thought of one way to get a camel through the eye of a needle. <laughs> a little eyedropper. It'd take a while. Tiny camel. But you wouldn't be able to reassemble it on the other end. It wouldn't be a camel. It would just be a mess. So a rich man's not getting into heaven. And you guys are like, that's all right. I'm not rich. <laughs> all right, let's take the rich man. The rich young ruler. Not only rich, but he had political position too. Let's see how rich he was. Did he own any of these things? Could you imagine how world-renowned he'd be if he possessed any of these, let alone the electricity to run them? What if he... I mean, think about this. How many of you own one or more of these things? Raise your hand. Oh, come on. How many of you own one or more of these things? Raise your hand. It's all of you. You are filthy rich. If you had had a calculator in World War II, you could have broken the Enigma code. You would have dominated the world with that simple calculator in the upper left-hand corner. And we, we, we give those away as Christmas gifts. You can buy them 100 for 20 cents a piece or something. Antibiotics. They couldn't even, they couldn't even diagnose diverticulitis back when this rich man lived. And yet I was saved by antibiotics. That would have been a debilitating, deadly disease. I would have been gone. You get a common cold back then, you were dead. You lived to 30, maybe. A microwave oven. Fascinating. You can get food from all over the world. They had to dry stuff. It's like, you want a piece of fish? Oh, ooh. Is, it, is it Chilean sea bass? No, it's a dried tilapia. This is exquisite. <laughs> and a microwave, you, you put it in, you press a button, you're like, bing! And you, you, you're trying to eat it without it cooling. You're like, ha, 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 ha. Hot pocket. A washing machine. Back in this man's day, they had to have servants and slaves and washing on rocks and pounding it and wringing it and didn't into soap. And you put a pot in, you just press the button, walk away. Just walk away. <laughs> Bing. Open it up. Just put it in the dryer. Put a little sheet in there. Close up. Press a button. Walk away. 
And you're like, yeah, but I have to fold it. No, you don't. They're clean. Just come like me, wrinkled. <laughs> An iPhone. How many people own a smartphone? I think I, I, think I do. <laughs> you, you can find out where you are anywhere in the world. They had to look up at the night sky to figure out where they were and have some sort of an astronomer travel with them. And if anyone had a map, they had to write it on vellum. You have paper. Do you understand that anyone possessing any one of these items would have been world-renowned and phenomenal? You have, you have running water flushing toilets. You get ice in the desert. Your drink dispenser is on the other side of the counter. You get free refills. The rest of the world has no clue what that means. You actually put ice in, take less drink, because you know you can go back and get more drink. I like ice to the roof. In Europe, they're like, why do you want ice? Because they they've been raised with a bad water supply, and they think that ice causes you to get sick. We have great water supply. Would you like bottled water, or would you like tap water? I want Thousand Oaks Finest. Just right from the garden hose, please. And it's better than any water in the world. We're rich. And because we're rich, a car. I don't care what kind of car you have, you have a car. And if you don't have a car, somehow you got here. I doubt anyone had to walk. And if you did, I'll give you a ride back. <laughs> we're rich. And because we're rich, we're going to hell. Again, joke. Why do I know that? Jesus said what's impossible for man is possible with God. It is impossible for a rich man to get to heaven. Just as, as it's impossible for a poor man to get to heaven. For grace is enough to save the rich man. We have the examples of people like Zacchaeus, Joseph of Arimathea, Barnabas, Abraham, David, Solomon. They were all rich and they're all in the hall of faith. Go figure. These all were rich men, still able to put God first, not their riches. It has nothing to do with your riches. It has to do with what you worship. The principle stands, God will be a debtor to no man. It is impossible for us to give more to God than he gives back to us. Having and keeping the heart of a giver will keep you from being corrupted by riches. You apply Psalm 62.10. It says, if riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Giving is the key. Now, this isn't a tithing mission. I'll explain why. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we covered this last week. You're saved by grace through faith. You're saved by grace through faith. Not by works. You can't buy it even if you're rich. You may be able to buy a house, but you can't buy a home. You can buy a bed. You can't buy sleep. You can buy sex, but not love. There's a lot of things your money can't buy you, and you can't buy your way to heaven. And I don't care how rich you are. If your life is all about the abundance of your possessions, you have no contentment. There's nothing wrong with money, though. Nothing wrong with money. But there is something very wrong with the love of money. Remember Timothy? We studied it. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. It is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these we shall be content. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
When you're rich, you have no real friends. You don't even know if your family is trustworthy. Just ask Mr. and Mrs. Menendez. You always wonder if somebody wants something from you. Jesus challenged the man to love God more than money. More than material things. The man failed the challenge. He walked away sorrowful. He was sad. He was bummed out. Jesus loved him. The man could keep the law... And he was blessed. But he missed the most critical point. He loved the blessing more than the one who blessed. We get caught up in things. And then we lose focus on why we're here and how we live together. And we stop teaching our children about community and service. We start loving things and using people instead of using things and loving people. We no longer participate in community. We don't feel it necessary to involve ourselves in the public square. And what I'm thrilled about, and the reason why this passage ministered to me, is I saw an aging evangelical leadership witnessing an awakening. And that awakening didn't come from the pulpits of their church. It came from the principles of how do we dwell together in civil society. All of them had come from a despotic nation. They were all immigrants that had been decimated. Many from Cuba, many from Venezuela, Honduras. And all of a sudden they're awakened to this idea of governing one another and dwelling together. And how do we have a society where we don't have to have bars on our doors and locks at night? And if you apply those principles, you'll flourish and you'll be blessed. But there's one catch. It needs to point you to the Lord. Because you may have this down, but this is critical. Is church just a box? Is God just a thing? You see, it's not a tithing issue for money for the church. I could care less about your money. Keep it. Keep every penny of it. Don't ever give a dime anywhere you go. Don't. I want you to know something. Don't need it. Don't want it. It's all yours. And guess what? We'll still have the lights on. We'll still have the heat running or the air conditioning. We'll still have a staff. God will get it to us without you. You know why he told this man to do what he did? And why he commits this principle of being first. He calls it the first fruits. It's freedom. You you walk in the counsel of the godly. 
you apply these principles of honesty and hard work and diligence and the laws of nature and nature's God. You apply the principles of scripture and the, and the Decalogue and the Levitical laws and all of a sudden you start to benefit. And the interest rates go up and people start working. Man does not work, he does not eat. So we give somebody a job. We start to include industry and we start to care for one another and you care for your workers. And all of a sudden people start to flourish. And the stock market's going through the roof. And the nation is moving again. We're watching an increase in our bank account. And then all of a sudden we forget about the Lord. What God does, he said there's a simple way to resolve that. I generate it all. Obedience to what I do generates it all. No matter how much you make, you still got eternity at stake. He said, here's the principle. You put me first. Look to me, the author and finisher of your faith. I'll let you do that by a tenth, and that'll help. He said, if you keep God first and you apply my commandments, you'll be blessed. You'll be happy. But I want you to know this. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are or how poor you are. There's one thing that I want you to know. It is impossible for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. So what I've done, God says, is not only have I given you laws that you would flourish, but I've given you eternal life, and it's in my son. This camel went through the needle. He was eviscerated. Every drop of blood was poured out. Efficacious for your salvation. This lamb was slaughtered. His body was broken. His blood was shed to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and to reconcile you to the Father. This is salvation. What was impossible for man is possible with God. And it doesn't matter if you're rich. If you're rich, it's impossible to get to heaven on your own. But guess what? If you're poor, it's impossible to get to heaven on your own. The ground at the foot of the cross is level, and it's open to all who would receive Jesus because the law that you have experienced that's allowing us to flourish is pointing you to the one who made it possible. You want to have a relationship with him? You have to be reconciled. Reconciled means God my sin separates me from you. But your body was broken, your blood was shed so that I could be reconciled to you. And if you believe in your heart and you confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved unto eternal life. He who has a son has life. He who does not have the son has, does not have life. I've told you this so that you may know that you have eternal life. The rich man's dilemma has been resolved and the poor man's dilemma has been resolved. Jesus passed through the eye of the needle. He walked the Via Dolorosa. He paid the price. And the Bible said as often as you do this, meaning communion, you do it in remembrance of Christ Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior. He cleansed us. He paid the price. I didn't need a Savior. Yes, you did. Sin separates you from God. You may be blessed on this earth, but you're going to die and give an accounting of your life before God. Did you ever lie? Did you ever cheat? Did you ever steal? Did you ever not honor your mother and father? One sin separates you from God for all eternity. And every one of you, whether you believe it or declare it or not, every one of you contemplates life beyond the grave. You can come up with some sort of gimmick and story. But God is giving you access to his kingdom. Eternal life awaits you. As many would believe unto them he gave eternal life and that's communion that's why we take it first Sunday of every month we come 
and we recognize this. And this accomplishes the impossible. We're saved. And that's pretty awesome.